Welcome to the Air Control and Elbow Surgeons podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. And I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? I'm doing outstanding, Pete. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing great. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Okay, today we have an episode for you on perhaps one of the most exciting and innovative new areas in shoulder surgery, and really within all of medicine, and that is augmented reality and virtual reality. So these are brand new topics, and to help us better understand them, um, we've invited two outstanding guests that are well-versed in this area. So first, we have Dr. John J.P. Warner. Dr. Warner is co-chief of the Mass General Shoulder Service. He's come to Boston in April of 1998 from Pittsburgh, where he served as a chief of shoulder service for eight years. He's also the co-chair of quality and safety and a professional orthopedic surgery at Harvard Medical School, and the founder and the past president of the New England, Shul- the New England Shoulder Animal Society. He served as past president of the American Shoulder Animal Surgeon Society. He's authored over 300 peer-reviewed publications, more than 200 book chapters, five textbooks, um, and he is um, he, he has been nationally, internationally recognized for his clinical and basic science research by numerous awards. Dr. Warner, welcome podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And the next we have Dr. Larry Higgins. Dr. Higgins is a board-certified orthopedic surgeon and a shoulder specialist. He um, obtained his medical degree um, with distinction in research from the State University of New York at Stony Brook. And um, then he went on to be doing orthopedic residency at the Hospital of Special Surgery. And then he did a sports and shoulder surgery fellowship at Pitt. And then he went to Duke, where he became head of sports medicine, where he founded the Centers for Excellence in Surgical Outcomes at Duke University Medical Center, which really stands for his long-term interest in outcomes research. He then went to Brigham Wins Hospital in Boston and then became sports medicine head there before taking his current role as the VP of Strategic Development at Arthrex. Now, we should mention this podcast is not sponsored by Arthrex. All of our speakers and hosts are consultants, and certainly many of us do have conflicts in this area and others, um, but the content today is really not specific to one specific company, and we're going to try very hard to cheap, try and keep our content more on a... Um, agnostic level about this technology generally instead of about one specific application of it that a, a country, a, a company is developing. So Dr. Higgins, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Rachel. So let's, let's start with the basics. So, um, you know, we've talked about augmented and virtual reality. Maybe you could tell us, Larry, what are each of those things? How do they differ from each other? What, what are the basics of each of those two technologies? Sorry, what is the basis of each? So I think there's, um, we, we use these terms augmented reality and virtual reality. I think they're visualization platforms. Um, when we think about augmented reality, there's, um, we're thinking about literally taking a image that is typically seen by the naked eye and then layering content on top of it. Um, as opposed to like a virtual reality uh, environment, where it is, uh, there's no content coming from the outside world. You're living in a completely virtual world, and uh, that's often seen in the in the gaming environments. Um, so most of the applications of what we're talking about, from a medical device standpoint or from a medical standpoint, have really centered around augmented reality, which um, I think is starting to take the lion's share of the work. There were some uh, virtual reality platforms that uh, were more based upon education. Uh, but from a surgical standpoint, from a real-time surgical standpoint or a patient interaction standpoint, um, we tend to 
tend to focus more on the augmented side than on the virtual side. Anything you add to that, JP? Any other distinctions you think are important as we just get out the definitions for what, what these technologies are? Yeah, I think there's a lot more nuances to it. First of all, uh, Larry mentioned gaming industry. I know this well because my brother is an entrepreneur in that area, and I specifically asked him about it because virtual reality hasn't done particularly well in the gaming industry at this point. Um, it's it's more the standard, uh, you know, screen-based interactions. But what's interesting is that virtual reality can be sub-segmented sub into what we do on the screen with planning and what we might do in a metaverse setting in terms of being in a in a virtual world where we can simulate the surgeries that we might do in the real world. That's a whole separate area. Um, art, uh, augmented reality, Larry described very nicely, but there's mixed reality, which is projecting a virtual world into the real world, which, which usually you see in the form of holograms. That's kind of different than augmented reality um, and should be differentiated. And there's sort of a virtuality continuum that's been described here. It gets a little confusing because we use many of these terms interchangeably. But if you look at this all in the context of an episode of care, and if you begin that episode before we actually get to the surgical treatment, but in education, you can then start to decode the value of each of these at each part of the episode in caring for a patient for a given problem. So one of the things I think I'm hearing, which I think is really important, is that to, to maybe say that we're already using some forms of virtual reality, but you're using them on your screen in front of you like pre-op planning. Whereas when we traditionally think about virtual reality, we're talking about a screen that goes on your head that maybe responds to the movement of your head in a way that your computer that sits on your desk in front of you does not. I mean, is that, do you think that's an accurate distinction there? So um, they're really two different things. Um, more than around a decade or more ago, we started to realize that we could plan on a computer screen and we called that virtual reality because we were taking CT scans and making 3D um, representations of those that we could plan with and operate with. Um, and most companies are doing some version of this, then how they use it in actual execution of the surgery is another matter. That's completely different than the concept of the metaverse where you go into a virtual world where you have social interaction with other individuals who may either be near you or thousands of miles away. And while we're still working on the haptic feedback part of it, we can simulate the actual surgeries that we may do in the real world and go through those steps. That's quite different than planning what we're gonna do in the operating room. So we have to be a little bit careful how we talk about virtual reality. And I would call what I just described as immersive virtual reality versus planning virtual. So I think when a lot of our, our shoulder elbow listeners think about VR, AR, mixed reality, they immediately have a picture of a headset because that's what's advertised right now. That's what's presented at meetings. And I think the people who have experienced this have a little knowledge about it, of course, but many people are more curious than anything else. So tell us about the headset, how that plays a role in using um, virtual reality or mixed reality in, in the operating room and where we're going with that. JP, let's, let's keep with you here and then we'll move on to Larry. Sure. So um, as we understand it now, Oculus, is, is the kind of headset that we use for virtual reality. It's, it's gotten smaller, but still rather large. And then mixed reality, uh, HoloLens uh, from another company and there are other uh, 
versions of this. What we're probably going to see in the not too distant future is a combined headset that can toggle between virtual reality and mixed reality and do both of these things. Um, the reason for that is if you've seen the latest development with Apple, um, they've developed their novel approach and that's going to result in significant competition and advance the hardware that we'll use for all of these different things, making it lighter and also more versatile in both, in both categories. I'll let Larry comment there, or you can ask Larry about what his view of that. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of different platforms that are out there. And I think, um, you know, when we look at the uh, mixed reality platforms, you know, the HoloLens, the Microsoft HoloLens, particularly the HoloLens 2, allows you to get uh, images from the real world, and then you can apply holograms uh, directly to that world. Um, the Apple Vision Pro de device is a little different in which you're actually uh, completely blocked off. And what you are looking at is an OLED screen. In fact, um, the only thing that you see when you're staring at someone uh, who's wearing an Apple Vision Pro is actually an avatar. It looks like their eyes, but it's actually just an image of an avatar. So those are completely immersive. Um, as opposed, and what you're seeing from the outside world is being portrayed through an OLED screen that's being captured by by sensors. Um, so they're a little bit different, um, and I do think that you know Apple has always been at the forefront of marrying fun design design with functionality, and the Vision Pro looks like there'll be no exception. Um, and I think it's going to be an interesting kind of uh, evolution what they're doing because they're doing something quite different than what the other Oculus or Microsoft opportunities are doing. Um, the other thing that we need to be thoughtful about is um, the immersive nature of these does have consequences. Um, there is some disorientation and um, we do want to be thoughtful about what parts of the procedure they're really most effective for. So I don't think at this point uh, anyone is advocating for you wearing the procedure, wearing the device for the entirety of the procedure, but I think people will be using it on and off for segments of the procedure um, and uh, getting insights from the holograms that are portrayed or the data that's being delivered to the, to the, uh, to the surgeon or the user um, while they're um, at critical stages of the procedure. So Larry, what you just said leads me to another question and it really gets to the meat of all this. Now you and JP are both incredibly talented, very experienced surgeons with hundreds if not thousands of reps of each surgery that you do under your belt. Why, why is this necessary? Why is this such an exciting field? Why are people interested in this? Is, is this going to improve outcomes or is it just something fun and fancy we can do? Um, wh wh why are we even embarking on this journey when, you know, once you've hit your learning curve for a given procedure, hopefully your outcomes will be good and your complications will be down. Wh why are we going through all this? Larry, let's start with you on that. I think it affects literally every part of the patient journey and using JP's words, um, I think if you think about the patient journey, um, it really allows the patient to be involved from the various earliest stages from a medic, from a patient education standpoint. Um, there's a great quote that Christian Gerber, uh, I learned from him, it said, do the operation in your head before you do it on the patient. You can literally be involved in a virtual environment and practice the operation that you're going to do, particularly on a complex case. Um, preoperatively. Um, you can then take your plan and you can show and educate the people who are going to be in the R with you what your plan is in a virtual environment. And then you can take data from the, uh, 
from the application, from wearing these uh, mixed reality uh, platforms. And you can get real-time feedback on what you're actually seeing. So for example, you uh, have a CT scan that's two months old or three months old. Um, you're able to uh, now wear the, head, wear the headset, marry that image up to what you're seeing. And what's really exciting is you can get adaptive insights whereby say the environment's changed a little bit, there's more glenoid wear, there's been a little glenoid fracture. You'll be able to see that and amend your plan on the fly by registering that directly to what you're seeing. Amend your plan on the fly. And then finally, and very excitingly, uh, capture the final implant position, uh, which is something that was very challenging to do, uh, and identify exactly the final component position, the final component orientation, um, you know, at the end of the procedure. So you can execute your plan to a degree that may be challenging uh, before. Um, the other exciting part about this is that I think it can help in virtually all stages of the operation. It can help in exposure, it can help in implant position, uh, guide wire placements. Um, and so um, I think in effect, virtually every component of the intraoperative aspect of it. And then postoperatively, they're using a virtual reality or mixed reality to aid in rehab or in pain management. Um, and um, there's enormous applications on the recovery side as well. So um, to JP's point, it literally touches every aspect of the patient journey. Um, and I think that's what's exciting about it. And the technology is growing so rapidly and advancing so dramatically. 10 years ago with a small field of view and a very limited uh, resolution, uh, people were using it for gaming and it wasn't very interesting. But uh, the advances now are happening so fast with HoloLens 2 and HoloLens 3 coming out and the Apple um, product coming out, the Apple Vision Pro. I think we're going to see an enormous investment um, in, uh, in us using this, this technology to make surgery safer, faster, and better for, for both the surgeon and the patient. I, I completely agree with you. This is a very exciting time. And I think that there's a lot of places you can envision its use and envision major benefit for the patient uh, throughout their quality of care. I want to ask you, JP, that it's easy to see a lot of different applications. What do you see as the killer application? What is what is the thing where people are going to say this was the revolution or this was the 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 place where 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 it made the most difference the most quickly? What, what's the, what's the place where we're going to see it first? Uh, you know, there there's so much that I could answer here. If you broke it down into the segments of the episode of care, there are a lot of different um, possibilities here, but uh, let me just concentrate a little bit on the question of value and the economics of what we're doing. And we have to use the term artificial intelligence here because it's gonna start to be embedded into not only the decision-making that surgeons do before they get to the operating room, but guiding them in the operating room and how that's gonna be integrated into this um, I'll leave to your imagination at the current time because there are a lot of companies working on this and I, I don't want to kind of get into proprietary information, but it's going to make a big difference. So just an important aspect here is for something to scale and, and um, be adopted, uh, it really has to deliver value. And so the economics of VR and MR are similar to robotics from the standpoint that it democratizes the outcomes. So when you have robots giving you haptic boundaries and helping with the execution, it has its broader impact across the range of surgeon skill. So those who are not tier one surgeons who have all these reps that have done this before are very much elevated in the quality of the care they deliver. 
in a way that errors will be reduced. And this is a really important concept. If you're looking across the um, growth of, an, of, of, of skills in a, in a given procedure, you want to shorten the learning curve because learning curves are associated with failures and failures are expensive. Um, we do that with robotics with a high capital expense uh, investment. But with these other technologies, be it VR and MR, we may be doing it with something that's less capital intensive, but more integrated into the, into the overall process of how we approach patient care. That's, that's a really important point. And even before we get to the operating room, um, we're, I believe immersive virtual reality is going to improve how we do surgery. There's always plenty of studies, prospective randomized studies demonstrating the economic uh, advantage of training in VR rather than cadavers, which are expensive, and other methods that produce surgeons with greater skill sets, or at least skill sets equivalent to what they get with cadavers before they start to go to the operating room and operate. And so this could be a significant impact on the next generation of surgeons that we're training. I could say more and more about it, but at the end of the day, um, none of this is going to succeed unless it produces value across the episode of care and considers value from the context of the different stakeholders, be it industry, patients, hospitals, et cetera. And um, initially when new technology is developed, it's expensive, of course, but it will drop as competition plays a greater role and this becomes more integrated into the way we deliver care for our patients. So JP, would you say wanna, that you I see that? Please go ahead. Peter, can I just add on to that? Because this, that mm -hmm. was a, a great segue. And I think um, JP and I both, I think have been thinking about this all on the patient episode of care, but one huge opportunity to create value is to think about the application outside of the U.S. and think of medical education in underserved areas. And there are numerous regions across the globe where access to quality medical education is limited, and AR and VR have the potential to really bridge that gap. Through these technologies, you know, medical professionals in underserved areas can virtually attend lectures. They can interact with top-notch you know, surgeons or faculty. They can engage in immersive practice sessions. They can learn how to plan. They can do mock surgeries. Um, and not only does it help from an education standpoint, but it even help from a diagnostic or consultative standpoint, um, or even from a research standpoint, creating global collaborative research paradigms. So um, I don't want to I don't want to uh, under, I don't want to just focus only on that because I think those applications from a value standpoint are almost impossible to quantify but are enormously impactful. Can I can I just I don't want to leave this for a moment because we're going to bridge into the business part of this but really important point um, we've now done virtual reality sessions with surgeons thousands of miles away including Ireland Switzerland and recently Saudi Arabia. And I can tell you, I went to Saudi Arabia as a visiting professor to give some lectures and to operate. And before I did that, I did a virtual reality training session for a surgery that we were going to do when we were there with one of the doctors. And when I arrived there, we then did the surgery. And I can tell you that um, the cost of doing that virtual reality session was nothing really. And it made a significant difference to the physician in terms of his readiness to do the operation. What's really interesting in the business area is that if you look at this from the business standpoint for companies, the customer acquisition costs could be driven way down from the standpoint of reaching out to customers in a virtual world. That's, that's a value for industry outside of just the orthopedic surgeons uh, from the standpoint of how they gain customers and get people interested in given products. If you don't have to bring the products to them, 
in the real world, you can bring it to them in the virtual world. Just one more item that we should put on the list. Well, I mean, there's so much great content there. Maybe I could follow up because that's, I think the last thing you said is probably one of the places we're going to see this soonest. Maybe lay that out for us. Like if you're, you're a practicing orthopedic surgeon, how is that going to change the way that you, that a company reaches out to you? Like how is, what is that going to look like? Do you think? Sure. So, um, and then Larry should probably comment on this since he's involved with a, with a, with a major company. Uh, but the way I see it is depending on the number of products that you have modules for, for how to use those products um, and how those modules are constructed, you'll be able to reach out to surgeons far, thousands of miles away. In, in fact, you can have your designated expert meet them in the virtual operating room and do the surgery with them before they actually do the surgery themselves in their own country. Um, and, and just think about how informative that would be and how they can actually make errors in the, virtu in the virtual operating room before they go to the real operating room and avoid those errors. It's an enormous opportunity without the distance between us being a factor. It all depends how we use that technology. And I think the opportunities are huge, especially when we reach out to countries that um, you know, are, are developing their technology. And for the companies that have that technology, it's going to scale their influence in their business significantly. But Larry might want to comment on that as well. Yeah, and I think we're not only thinking about surgeons, but we're also thinking about engaging people earlier on in their training. I mean, we've seen uh, many medical schools integrate VR simulations into their curriculum, and I, I think some of this was precipitated by uh, by COVID. Um, and so, uh, you know, young medical students who uh, grew up playing video games were learning anatomy in a virtual environment because they couldn't make it to the cadaver lab. Um, and now um, it's not a big leap to imagine that during their third, fourth year of medical school, they can do simulated surgeries, which you've never been able to do uh, in an effective educational platform. So I think the engagement is um, to be, uh, is, is gonna be occurring at much earlier time points or time horizons than what we ever imagined in the past. Um, you know, taking uh, the uh, basic fracture course is gonna be something that's gonna be done in a virtual way uh, in, you know, end of medical school, beginning of residency. And um, the costs associated with running uh, intensive cadaveric labs, we've all been to, you know, multi-site cadaveric labs. It's impossible to, to scale that outside of special centers. So bringing that technology to allow uh, the gamification of training to accelerate learning, to hone skills, and then ultimately to drastically reduce errors is going to occur at earlier and earlier time points in our training. All right. One question I have for both of you based on what was just discussed is with this type of technology, are we soon going to see surgeons with basic or poor skill sets either, you know, let's face it, there are some surgeons who just aren't as good as, as we'd hope they'd, they'd be. Is this going to make them better? Is this going to make all surgeons reach some basic level of competency because the technology will essentially force it almost painting by numbers. All you have to do is show up. Will this um, potentially reduce surgical training duration in terms of orthopedic residencies, et cetera? How, how will this change from 
you know, the years of training and the years, if not decades of experience that it takes, you know, we all know the 10,000 hour rule in terms of what it takes to become excellent at our craft. How does this change that? And are there risks with that? Do we have to worry about that poorly skilled surgeon using this technology to his or her advantage, but that there's still potentially being a poor outcome? Uh, JP, what are your thoughts here? Well, um, first of all, let me let me concentrate on immersive virtual reality, and then there's the execution in the operating room, and then there's the issue of how well people can use their hands. I mean, psychomotor skills. But um, what we're talking about with we we what we just uh, discussed in terms of immersive virtual reality is creating training that is purposeful and driven to um, avoid errors and to make the proper decisions while you're operating. And the beauty of these these modules and this technology is that you can create opportunities for errors in order to avoid them. You can measure the performance of an individual in executing uh, the tasks associated with a given procedure, the number of errors and steps it takes for them to get to a certain point. And in fact, it is the case that um, some regulatory bodies around the world, including in the United States, are considering the possibility of this technology evolving into the potential for uh, working with recertification, not just based on knowledge, but based on execution, skill sets in a virtual world. So if those organizations are thinking this is possible, it's quite remarkable the impact it may have from the standpoint of error avoidance and improving skills. In the physician, in the physicians, whether they're learning or they're or they're further along in their career. But one other point I wanted to make is, in terms of the operating room, it's a totally different story. And I truly believe, in the same way that we can get haptic feedback from robots that have boundaries, if you will, that avoid that help us avoid the errors uh, that we might otherwise make, um, we can get AI surveillance while we do procedures with holographic or augmented reality. Um, technology where we get visual cues and auditory cues warning us to avoid a particular error that we might otherwise be likely to make. Um, once that becomes more automated and, and connected to the processes, we'll see less errors and we'll see better surgery across the range of surgeons. I don't think there's any question of that. So, you know, you can parallel this to lots of things. I mean, people go to the golf range and hit golf balls over and over again, making the same mistakes, or they do purposeful training in order to get better muscle memory and better repro reproduction of proper body mechanics. The same thing can happen in the immersive virtual reality world as well as in the operating room with these kinds of technologies. Just to add on to that, I, I think JP's 100% uh, right there. I, I do think that there is a risk of dependency over reliance that could develop. Um, and. Um, you know, while AR and VR tools offer these immense benefits, you, you want to avoid those risks. The human touch, the intuition, the eye-hand coordination, and the experience of medical professionals is still irreplaceable. And we have to strike a balance using these tools as aids and not replacements. Uh, one of the things that I think these devices do um, more than any other uh, devices, um, it's a little bit like doing uh, an open surgery. And, I would think it would be very difficult for me to stare at a screen and do an open surgery. And we do that with arthroscopy, uh, but I think it would be very difficult for me at this point to learn how to do an open surgery and stare at a screen. What's really nice about this is that you're staring at the field, 
getting augmented uh, holograms or data or looking at a plan um, and never leaving never leaving your gaze off the patient. And really, the surgeon becomes the center of of that process as opposed to a robot, which may in some ways be replacing the surgeon from those roles. I'm, um, I'm reading a book right now that was recommended to me by Steve Burkhart called Why Things Bite Back. It's by Edward Tenoritz. He's a Princeton historian. It's about the unintended consequences of technology and the reasons why, you know, you may develop something and think it's going to be better and that it can sometimes it's better, but sometimes it's worse. I think what this is what you're talking about is unintended consequences. Will we as surgeons not be as good with our tactile feedback? I think the other things we need to worry about are this technology will require increased vigilance to ensure that it's functioning properly. So in the operating room, you'll be worried as a surgeon, not just about, am I doing the surgery properly, but also is this headset functioning properly? So for instance, you know, if it's going to offer you some advice relative to the patient, it has to be registered relative to the patient. So it has to, it has to be able to project onto your screen, the patient's anatomy overlay it onto what you're seeing. And that registration process is, I think we've all seen with robots, is fraud. I mean, there are times where the registration is not accurate. I'm hoping you can both talk about some of the other potential unintended consequences or, or, or potential downfalls or risks with this technology. And basically, what are the dangers here that we might encounter? Um, what are your thoughts, Larry? I think there's some uh, risks outside of the use. I mean, there's the patient data and privacy risks. Um, and I think that, um, you know, there's enormous volumes of digital data that we're storing on, on these patients and we have to uh, make sure we maintain the sanctity of, of the patient data and privacy. Um, I also think there's got to be a real informed discussion, informed consent with the patient about using these tools, um, about their purpose, their risks and their benefits. Um, and then, you know, there's also the accessibility and equity aspects of it. Um, and making sure that it's not just uh, not just applicable only to those who uh, can afford this technology. We have to make sure that we kind of democratize this. So um, I think those are those are some of the other risks that probably aren't thought about as often as technical risks. Um, obviously, the big technical risks are you need to make sure you have appropriate redundancy in the OR um, if you're. Uh, developing a technology that you're becoming reliant on, you need to have redundant systems that allow it to make sure it's it's uh, it doesn't fail, uh, and that's why I, I think we always must think of this as an aid and not a re as a replacement. What are your thoughts, JP? Um, yeah, a number of things. First of all, um, it, again, it depends how we're using the technology. If we use it before we go to the operating room, or we're talking about in the operating room. Um, doing it before you go to the operating room, just imagine how a patient feels when you tell them, I've already done your surgery virtually, um, and now I'm going to do it in you. It's a little bit the same as how somebody flying on a plane would appreciate the fact that, this, that the pilot had trained in a, in a simulator as part of their flight training. So they've simulated the errors to know how to avoid them. That, that's a whole separate area. So that's... that's um, you know, that adds significant value in and of itself. As far as the operating room goes, I think there are some risks in terms of becoming dependent on um, technology and losing the ability to reference and have skills otherwise uh, that, that we learn as surgeons how to do things. Um, you know, I think the regulatory process is, is, a, is, is going to be more and more something we learn how to do because the FDA 
has um, n not been dealing with this. They've mostly been dealing with drugs or with uh, implants and things of that nature. So dealing with patenting software or approving approving uh, software for use in, in patients uh, is going to be an interesting um, process as this as this stuff comes on board and, and bumps up against that. And then of course the the HIPAA part of it. I think that's important. But that said. You know, the next generation of digital natives, uh, the timing is perfect. You know, the, the surgeons that are, that are coming out now that we're training, they're, they're automated to using computers. They're ready for all of this. And so um, whether, we, whether we want it or not, they're going to be very interested in the technology. It's a little bit like saying, would you rather have stayed with the slide rule than gone to the calculator? And I can tell you, in my generation, I used the slide rule in, orga in inorganic chemistry. They wouldn't let us use a calculator in those days. So I think none of us would argue that the past was better than where we are now. And I think it's going to be the same thing here in terms of weighing the risks and the benefits. I'd love to ask both of you what you see is happening in real time within shoulder surgery, fracture surgery, sports medicine, perhaps in the next one, three and five years. What is, you know, not the 10, 20 year future plan, but what's going to happen in this field that's going to directly impact us as surgeons, that's going to directly impact industry and going to ultimately impact patients. What What is the next one, three and five year vision? Uh, Larry, let's start with you. So I think that uh, in the next year, we're gonna see increased and enhanced adoption of um, preoperative planning as a, as a prerequisite for doing surgery. Um, and we're gonna be able to um, Currently, right now, in hip and knee and shoulder arthroplasty, proper plans are becoming almost a standard of care. But we're going to see that extend uh, into the soft tissue realm of surgeries. And um, we've seen certain advances already by um, consuming MRs, not just CT scans and getting models, but getting MR models of bones with soft tissue and identify optimal uh, ACL uh, tunnel locations or PCL tunnel locations. I think that's the, the one-year mark. In the, in the three-year mark, I think we're going to see an adaption uh, into the AR, VR world where we're going to see uh, things that augment it, particularly the application of sensors. Um, they're making sensors now that are like the size of a grain of rice, and these are going to enhance the, uh, the specificity and the granularity and the accuracy of these AR devices uh, many-fold. And we're seeing, um, as we, we've seen on the computer chips, NVIDIA and others are advancing the hardware so fast that we're going to see these multi-stack uh, hardware chip, hardware uh, solutions that are going to be able to do real-time processing in a way that's much faster. Um, I think we're going to start seeing AI in three years, but I think in, in five years, we're going to really see the overlay of enhanced AI um, providing insights into surgery. I think you know, giving surgeons more relevant information is going to become the purview of, our, of AI and these cloud spatial computing opportunities where you're going to be moving towards the axillary nerve during a, a release and it's going to tell you that the axillary nerve is three millimeters away from where you are currently. Things that um, are going to really enhance your ability to avoid complications, optimize your surgery, and um, register and reflect on large libraries of tens of thousands of cases or even hundreds of thousands of cases where we don't not only have uh, real-time images uh, from what you're doing 
but predictions of complications and predictions of outcomes and range of motion. And then finally, at the end stage of that, I think we're already seeing people applying neural network, um, neural link rather, opportunities where you can literally just think about something. And uh, like, for example, you can think that uh, you'd like to see the CT scroll or you want to move a PTZ camera. Um, those things are going to actually be automated. And the advances that are happening on neural links are remarkable. And the, and the last piece, which is going to overlay all of them, is a little bit of what JP said. We're going to have digital natives doing this, but we're also going to have widespread consumer acceptance. Um, you know, soon uh, you're going to be interfacing with an AI program more and more regularly to aid in making a diagnosis if you have the flu or if you have some other ailment. And we're going to have an expectation the consumer is going to expect there to be these uh, these uh, AI uh, algorithms that are going to help surgeons make better, faster, safer decisions. JP, what are your thoughts? What's the future? Yeah, I, yeah, I'd agree with everything Larry said. A few things I want to add into this. Um, one is that right now we're seeing mixed reality guidance for stroke management in some countries where uh, the expert centers are at a distance from the, the rural population. And in one country, it's a mandate from the government that um, through mixed reality and remote remote uh, control, if you will, or remote oversight, mixed reality is being used for um, uh, interventional stroke care. So think about that for a moment and how that could scale to deliver high quality care if experts can reach out across a distance, not only in the virtual world, but into the operating room through mixed reality because uh, the surgeon doing the planning of the vascular tree in the brain, um, you know, that can be controlled from a distance. And then the expert can be watching through the glasses that the, that the surgeon the, or the interventional radiologist has to help the process of doing that procedure. And I'm outside of orthopedics now, but you can think of the possibilities. That's one area. The other is that all of this will insinuate itself into the value chain across the episode of care. And it will become expected and, and uh, in terms of the adoption of it uh, for all the reasons Larry mentioned. Um, and a, an additional thing I think we really have to comment on is that we're leaving out of the picture AI. And um, just as a reference point, there's a great book called Deep Medicine written by Eric Topol that talks about uh, the potential of AI to um, help us in all of these technologies that we're using. I, I don't think there's any question that we'll have digital assistance in the operating room, we'll have, um, whether it's sensors or otherwise, we'll, we'll have error avoidance um, uh, you know, opportunities in the surgeries that we do. And the last point I want to make is when you ask this question about one year, five years, 10 years, if we, at least if we talk about AI, AI is going at more than twice the speed of Moore's law in terms of advancing. And so it's very difficult to predict something that's moving that fast. And um, it's also very difficult not just to predict it, but to imagine how that gets through the regulatory process to be used. But one thing that's going to happen is there's going to be a huge um, competition, what I call digital wars, among all these companies that have been mostly focused on implants. And the differentiation that we're going to see is become more, going to become more and more how we put these implants in, if we're just talking about arthroplasty, for example, or anything else for that matter. Um, rather than the actual devices we're putting in. And that, that's not the way it was in the past. It's going to be this digital um, world connected to the real world from the standpoint of 
how we care for our patients. And the last point I want to make is that uh, the value that we create is temporal. There's the initial outcome, there's the process of recovery, and then there's the durability. And one of the challenges here is going to be that we'll probably see when we put implants in a more durable outcome, but we won't see it in the early time period. And so it's going to be difficult to argue on the value in the short term when you compare using it or not using it. And that's going to be a challenge to some degree, I think, in scaling it unless we manage the cost of all this technology. Well, this has been like a real tour de force. We've covered a lot of ground, but I'm sure there are places we've left untouched. I want to ask both of you, is there anything else we haven't touched? Any, any other thoughts you have in this space that, um, that you wanted to share with our listeners? Um, maybe, Larry, what, what else, what, what have we missed? I, I think we've, um, I think we've missed it, but I think it is literally going to change the way we uh, engage patients and prepare for surgery. Uh, like I said, that quote, do the operation in your head before you do it on, on a patient is now there's going to be an expectation. Um, I, I can tell you that preoperative planning for my cases made every aspect of my patient care better. And most amazingly, it made the entire OR team better because the very first thing that we did was we posted our plans up on the wall and we would uh, spend five minutes and just review the plans with the scrub team so they knew exactly what cases we were going to uh, do an anatomic on or reverse on, which ones we were going to bone graft or, or what other procedures we were going to do. And the entire team got better. Um, and so I think that we're going to see a system-wide, a network effect from this um, where people are going to really have an expectation there's going to be a plan of care and it's going to be about executing that plan of care. I do think that the cost of doing this is uh, this development is very hard to calculate. And uh, until we can prove durability, um, we do have to figure a way of, 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 fi of funding this because uh, I, I do believe that um, we have wonderful solutions right now, for example, for rotator cuff repairs. Um, but the next real evolution in rotator cuff repair probably isn't going to be a slightly better anchor or a slightly better patch. It's probably going to be uh, using uh, AI and algorithms to determine what's the what's the optimal place to place the anchors, or maybe what's the optimal case not to put anchors in at all and not do a rotator cuff repair. I think avoiding complications is going to be something that, uh, that over time we're going to learn an enormous amount of that, and we're going to have much better count, much better insights on who not to operate on or what not to do. Uh, and that is uh, that's hard to quantify, and I think will change the way we we care for patients. What about you, JP? Can I just any of the fun thoughts? Yeah, let me just add on to that. Um, it, it's not that we miss things. We just haven't really concentrated in some areas where there's real value. And Larry briefly mentioned that, uh, you know, how we approach this from a team approach is really important. And to be fair, um, in the area of companies, imagine training your sales reps using some of this technology. They become surgeons before they're selling things to surgeons. That, that helps the company significantly. But, you know, for some time now, whenever a new technology comes along where I have a v, have it in a VR module, I actually ask the OR team that's going to be helping me to come and do the surgery virtually in my office before they help me in the operating room. And you can imagine not only how that improves their understanding, but how enthusiastically they participate when they themselves are the surgeons in the virtual world before they're helping the surgeon in the real world. The other point I want to make in terms of the cost of all of this is they're going to be 
significant partnerships that we'll be developing between the, the uh, tech world. You know, all the big players, uh, be it, and we mentioned some of Microsoft, uh, you know, uh, um, Meta um, and others, uh, in how they interact with uh, healthcare. And since they're developing this technology, a huge application is going to be in healthcare. And the collaboration between companies like Arthrex and the other ones is going to be significant in order to bring this technology into the world of healthcare. That will not happen without that collaboration. And it's very important to make sure that we emphasize that that's the only road forward. Okay. I want to thank both of you for coming on. This has been awesome. I mean, I, I think listeners are going to really enjoy both of your deep insights and uh, thoughts about this technology as it currently stands and how it, it could help us and our patients in the future. I know both of you are busy and really appreciate your time. This has been great. Thanks, thank Peter. You. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks, JP. All right. Great. Take care. Yeah, I'll, I'll echo what Pete said. We want to thank you both so much. Your your knowledge base on this topic and just innovation technology in general is just incredible. And I can't wait to see where this field goes. And, and thank you for educating all of our listeners. That is all the time we have for this podcast. We want to thank our guests so much for spending the time. And for all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.